So welcome everyone to the session on the 9th of February 2019. I'm going to start by just answering a question that was raised a minute ago about moral dilemmas. So the example was that you go to the supermarket and you find a trolley that already has the money in it. And so there's a moral question in that moment, or the mind asks the question, is it right for me to take this trolley? Or should I leave it for someone else? Was that the question? Yeah. And so there's sort of a degree of potential guilt in taking something that you didn't procure. Yeah, but also to being um, ungrateful, worthy, oh, well, no, ungrateful for an opportunity coming on. Right. Versus just take it and be grateful. Yeah. Or maybe this is something coming to me and I should just accept it. Mm. Or would you flip that and say, if she asks that question, does she think she's not worthy of receiving that. Mm. But see, so the answer, my answer is this. Where do these questions arise? I mean, if you're fully present, then this is good because it will bring us into the sutras that we're going to talk about. So it's a very relevant question. Where does the question arise? Should I do this or should I not? Is it the big S or the little S? What, what is that dialogue? Ego. Well, it could be, but I mean, where is it occurring? In the mind. It's just mind. We, we, we sort of torture ourselves with these questions of should I, shouldn't I? So we get trapped in indecision because we can't think our way through it trying to think our way through something that may not even be a problem as it turns out really did it did it matter one way or the other to the universe whether you take the trolley or not only to maybe the person that came along behind me may have really needed that dollar potentially but that again is the mind mm. I guess probably the person that left it they might have needed it more they might have what the one that left it there may, may have needed it more, but you can't know all those things. It's speculation. You can't know any of that. Mm. So it's just the mind running with ideas. And the truth of the situation is there's a trolley with a dollar in it. I basically, I think, which, whichever way you go, if you acted spontaneously and decisively without thinking, that would be the right course of action. But the moment you start to torture yourself with the Story. with yeah, the, the, the rights and wrongs of something that really isn't that consequential, it's just more noise. So, I mean, I'm not trying to... Um, diminish the fact that we regularly encounter questions like this, but in the scheme of things, the ultimate state, your higher self doesn't, 
doesn't really matter. It doesn't care about it. If you were gonna, if you went and uh, took someone's money out of their trolley as they're about to take the trolley or put it back, and you take the money and run off, and it's an act of theft, and there's emotion involved in that. Well, yeah, there's probably some karma in that situation. But in a static situation like that, where, I mean, if you're walking along like I was yesterday, you did, no, you I found five cents on the ground. And I looked at it, and I thought, but see, I was observing my mind. This is what we need to do more of, is observe, not be in the thoughts, but observe the thoughts. And I'm observing my thoughts, and the thought is saying, should I pick this up, or shouldn't I? So the, the same situation, you know, may, arguably someone could need that five cents more than me, not that you can buy much with five cents these days, or a dollar for that matter. It's the principle. But the question is, <coughs> what do you do? And I think that a yogi would say, it's all just mind. Uh, don't invest too much awareness in things that are just inconsequential. Otherwise, I'll tell you what happens. If you want to go down this track of being misperfect, not you personally, but you know, trying to live your life so that every single decision you make is optimal, you're not going to be able to do it because you don't know the story behind every situation. So you would end up living a, a life, which I think we all tried to do in the early days. You're trying to be a yogi. So, you know, you're doing this and you're doing, not doing that and you're avoiding these foods and you're eating these and you're not, you know, using bad language. And, and so you're trying to, you're walking a tightrope. That kind of existence is a tightrope because you can't look left or right for fear that you're going to fall off the path. And it's a common thing for people that are um, wanting to, uh, let's say, live more mindfully. You, would, you might think that that's a worthwhile thing. But you get to a point where liberation, let's go to the other end of the journey. In the state of liberation, these questions don't even arise. You're just acting spontaneously according to what the situation requires without thought. You'd either just take the trolley or you just wouldn't take the trolley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like the Zen koan of the how do you get a goose out of a bottle? You know, they give you these, in Zen, they give you these koans, K O A N, which are like hypothetical problems to solve. And the truth is, there is no solution. It's designed to exhaust the mind so that eventually the mind gives up. And the mind falls away, and in that falling away of mind, the truth of your reality reveals itself. And so the, what the koan I remember was, how the master says, how do you get the goose out of the bottle? So immediately the mind's going, well, how did the goose get in the bottle? You know, and it goes on these cycles. And then, you know, there's probably no right answer because it's not about the answer, it's about the process. And so the master, in the end, the student goes, finally, the, the student just completely gives up. And he goes, please tell me. And the master just goes, it's out. Like that. 
So what he's trying to do is break through completely the overthinking process that we're doing is we're overthinking it. So that applies to everything, I think. It's not that some decisions don't require thought. Obviously, if you're going to make a property investment or something like that, you're going to consider all the factors. But if it's, an, if it's something that is really of no real consequence, just... It just yeah, just just do something. Just do anything. Move on. Nothing matters. Ultimately, from the viewpoint of the state of the self, nothing matters anyway. Yes, there could be karma. You could say, well, does that mean I can go around and you know steal little old ladies' handbags, or let down my neighbours' tyres because they played music too loud? Well, you know, potentially the answer to that is you could do that. Actually, if you were if you were confident enough in your ability. To, and, and please don't take this as a license for criminal behavior. But if you were able to act in the moment with no, with no thought and no passion and just act, just act, you could actually perform the action without creating a karmic consequence. But then a murderer might use that. Yeah, but it's an extremely dangerous strategy because if there's any ego at all in the action, well, it's very hard to, you know, even the faintest trace of ego, then you've created karma and you'll get a rebound from that. What about when people are acting um, due to emotions? So people who don't emotionally regulate very well yep. and they do something out of anger and yep. later regret it. Yeah. And then just, yeah. So that would create, if there's emotion involved, then there's probably some karma involved. Yep. If there's anger involved and intention involved, then there's going to be some karma there. If it's a reflex action, say self-defense, something where you don't even think, or someone's about to um, hit someone else and you just stand right in front and you're doing it without thinking. This is what I'm getting to, this bit, bit about getting mind out of the picture and just being fully present and doing what require, is required to be done, then that's karma-free. That's, that's how yogis act. They do what the situation requires without any thought of gain or or loss that's karma free so we go back to the bhagavad-gita and krishna saying to arjuna go through the motions do what needs to be done according to your uh, responsibilities but do it without any sense of reward or of punishment because arjuna's in the chariot and they're about to go to war and he decides he doesn't want to shoot arrows at his other opposing side which are his some of his family members he says, I can't do this. And Krishna goes, you're not doing anything. You are not the doer. You know, this, this is just what the situation requires. And the, and the highest understanding is that you perform according to what, the, what your duty and what the situation requires. And if you can act in that way, then it, there's no consequence. It's where you sit there and you prevaricate, should I or shouldn't I, and the mind gets involved and then emotions get involved then there's a consequence. Do you know, have you ever done something where you really, at the time, really felt you shouldn't have done it? I think we've all done that. There's some time, things you've done, that you, even as you were doing it, or about to do it, you kind of thought it was the wrong thing to do. Which isn't quite your situation, but potentially it could be. I mean, really, it is your situation. If you invested 
a lot of energy and power into this decision as to whether you should or shouldn't do it. Let's say uh, you came to the conclusion that it was absolutely the wrong thing to do to take the trolley with the one dollar in it. Every part of you said this is wrong and you still went ahead and did it. There's probably karma in that. But if you approach the same situation with no mind and just took the trolley, that would probably be karma free. What is it? Sorry, what about say like children who haven't yet learned to emotionally regulate mm -hmm. and they, you know, are feeling anger and frustration and sadness for the first times and they're acting out of that and they might just be learning what's right and what's wrong. You know, is there some kind of compassion for... Yeah, I think it's, uh, the rules don't apply as strictly with those who are only just forming ego. Yeah. It's more in terms of how complete the formation of ego is. Right. If ego is fully formed... And there's no excuse. And then, yeah, well, pretty much you're, you've got to take responsibility for that. But again, a child, you could say, even in law, children are not held accountable for their criminal conduct. But beneath a certain age, they're said to lack legal capability to form the requisite criminal intent. Because at that point, they aren't able to differentiate between right and wrong. And so any, any choice they make is likely to be well, treated much more leniently because they don't have the construct. But with an adult, if you know absolutely that it's wrong to kill someone and you do, then there's going to be very heavy karma on that. But transposing that into the same action, killing someone, but in a different situation, self-defense or a just war, where you're in defense of... A, the nation or someone that's vulnerable. It's the same action, killing a person, but the karmic consequences are completely different. But then there's a third situation. What about someone who enjoys killing that is in war and delights in causing suffering to the opponent? Different category, again, to the professional soldier that is just acting with no mind. You see the difference? Yeah. So it all depends on context. Emotional context, Degree of intent, degree of you know willfulness, same thing, intent, willfulness. So could it possibly be that people that like don't like do things and they don't have much self like regulation and they act and they don't and they they generating a lot of bad karma um, and they just don't seem to have that capability to like rise above. Is it possible that their like soul isn't as well developed? They haven't learnt enough lessons to kind of be refining that and have that kind of control or take that responsibility. You now some people just don't take responsibility and mm -hmm. you just you, you must feel sorry for them because mm -hmm. they're not capable. Yeah. Would you say that maybe they haven't learnt the lessons and they're just not as developed as somebody who who can? Yeah, that's the that's how evolution works. I think is that you initially you're acting unconsciously. Like in this, this case you give low vibration, you know, very willful behaviour, no regard to the consequences or the feelings of the people that are affected. And there'll be a karmic rebound and presumably either this life or after this life, they'll be forced to confront that. There's no external judge that says, you know, you're going to be punished now. It's you're the judge. The soul captures all this. It's like, you know, those cars that go around and they're recording everything. 
So the soul is recording everything. The, the, the inner, the observer, is recording everything. And it's actually being... How's karma created? It's created by um, impressions being formed energetically on the subtle energy body. The energy body, which survives death. So it's encapsulated within the energy body that su survives death. And so I'm giving you just classic yoga theory now. This is how this karma is explained and understood. So when the soul leaves the physical body, it's then permitted to review all the actions and, and, comes and is made to feel actually the pain that it has caused others. It must encounter that, and sometimes even more acutely than the actual victims suffered it. And the idea there is that, it that this is the maturation of the soul, going from a young soul to an old soul, is that you're, getting, you're accruing all those lessons, and so you're accruing, so you could say, an internal wisdom and inner knowledge of um, moving away from your animal nature, say, to a more higher vibrational state where, I mean, to a person that's in a very high state, you, this concept of non-violence is very powerful in yoga. It's one of the uh, yamas and niyamas, the basic do's and don'ts. Do no harm. See, because it sort of gets a little convoluted here. At the highest level of understanding, there is no other so that you're shown that eventually if you hurt another, you're hurting yourself because of the interconnectedness of all things. But the lower evolved souls can't, rem they don't recall that and so they continue to make these errors of judgment, as it were, until, you know, after many, many incarnations, you, you learn the lessons. We've all been there and now we're here. In a way, though, when you have people like that in your life, or you know people like that, who, you know, they're not bad people, but you just you can just see that they make choices that don't consider other people. Right. And you just, like, sorry, what was my point? Um, so is, you, no matter how much you try to, like, explain to them or teach them, or the world keeps teaching them the same lef lesson, it's, you know, not going to be something that they learn, like, immediately. It's not by be, you telling them, no. <laughs> Like how exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So they have to like live through many lives to kind of get Yeah, paid. but your what do you do with that person is because this is a dilemma if you're living with someone or dealing with someone that's not as evolved as you mm. and you can see quite clearly the effect that they're having on others but they can't and you can't tell them. Then what how should you approach that person? And this is this goes straight to what Patanjali said about the four attitudes. I don't know if you were here that week. But someone had been with this master and had done all the practices and said, well, okay, I'm ready to go back out into the world now. How should I be with the people that I'm going to confront? It's all very well living here in the ashram where everyone's following the Dharma, you know, so it's a pretty mellow sort of place. Although you see a lot of ego in ashrams too, right? So, but let's just say in this ashram, they're all pretty good. Then he says, I'm worried that I have to go back out in the world now and I have to confront life and there are going to be people there that are not so as evolved or conscious of what they're doing and what, how am I to respond? I don't want to lose this deep state of peace that I now feel 
what is your advice? That was the, basically the question. And Patanjali says, in this world there are four kinds of people. He's trying to categorize. There are those who are happy. There are those who are virtuous. There are those who are fortunate. And there are those who are, in inverted commas, evil. Right? If you take an Advaita view on this, all oh, this is nonsensical because there's no duality, good, bad, black, white. But we're in the Patanjali school now where he's creating a distinction between different classes, as it were, of people, different states. So he says, so in relation to the people who are happy, you should be sorry I missed one so I conflate I have to conflate happy and fortunate they're the same group what's virtuous mean sorry virtuous is um, noble mm. has good qualities so he's saying well now he says in respect of those who are happy or fortunate the low vibrational response to that is to feel um, envious, jealous of their good fortune. But he says the better approach, if you want to maintain your peace, is to feel happy for their happiness. That's a high vibrational state. As for those who are virtuous, he says you should admire their virtue, look up to them, you know, see them as a role model. Uh, isn't it wonderful? Uh, you know, I really could learn from that. As opposed to the opposite reaction to those who are virtuous, you might feel, I don't think it was jealousy, but there's some other... Um, envy? Yeah, it won't be jealousy. Maybe it's um, trying to talk them down or yeah. something like, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's saying that all that does is it brings you down. If you want to stay high and peaceful, be ad admiring of their virtue. The third category, category are those who are evil, not good, not well behaved. He's saying that the obvious temptation is to condemn them, to judge them, to condemn them, to, um, you know, put them down. But he's saying, when you do that, again, that lowers your own state, bringing you down to their level some, to some degree. He says the better approach for the, for the wicked uh, is to be indifferent. In other words, don't ju just... Now, you might think, well, sorry, um, shouldn't I in intervene? Can't, how can I let a wicked person be wicked? That may be required, or you may leave it to the legal system or the police, the law enforcement or whatever. But he's saying in terms of your attitude towards them, how you regard them, the better attitude to have is just don't give it any energy at all. Rather than, you see what would happen if you became fixated by their behavior? You would actually become, become, begin to take on. The more that you dwell on that evil, you, you take it on. But sometimes when 
possibly they're projecting it onto you and then you have an emotional reaction like you feel hurt or you you know maybe from a higher vibrational frequency you might be able to just let that brush pass past you mm -hmm. and understand that you know it's not you know personal all this stuff and you can look at it from this exactly but there's part of you that's like well actually like i don't know you want to kind of defend yourself or which maybe that's ego yeah. that's ego any sense of i being attacked i being threatened by that is egoic being a victim yeah. A victim, yeah. Because the, the self, if you want to stay in your peace, then you're really in the state of the witness state, where there is nothing to defend. You're just watching it as if you're watching a movie. Now, I'm saying if there's another person being harmed, it may be appropriate to intervene. And if you do that, you have to do it in the way that I described before, with dispassion, dispassion according to what the situation requires, and then walk do what needs to be done. What about, like, um, self when you're, you, you're kind of self-pride and it's sort of like I won't allow people to behave like that to me, like I won't accept that, like sort of, mm -hmm. you know, when you kind of, you know, strong. That's know also, that is actually ego as well. Yeah. You might say it's like self-respect self yeah. is actually, well, I'm not saying it isn't part of a, a healthy ego, mm -hmm. but it's still ego. And ultimately you want to go even beyond that, that there's nothing that they can do to harm you anyway. In terms of, let's say, that if they could physically harm you, well, then you have to defend yourself. But if they're just throwing words at you, our teacher used to be fond of saying, I can cook a meal for you, but you don't have to eat it. So I can serve you negativity, but you don't have to take, it's your choice if you take it on, it's your choice how you respond to that, or you can just you know, it takes two people to have a fight. If the second person just, I'm not going there, where does that leave the antagonist? Without a sparring There's no one to tango with. They might get angrier at first because they want to fight, but you're not playing that game because you'd prefer to be in peace. Walk away from the situation, do whatever you need to do. I'm just saying if that's according to, I mean, I'm generalizing here because there are going to be a million different scenarios where it may be important to say that's wrong or something. But the, but the emotion, what Patanjali is talking about is not the action or the words, but the, emo, the emotion or state that you hold when you're doing that is, should be indifference. There's no investment in it. Yeah. Right, got it? Now the fourth category of people, he said you're likely to encounter are those who are suffering. Um, some people might feel, I don't know, indifferent maybe to that. And he's saying what is called for here is actually compassion. So all of these four attitudes of joyful for their good fortune, admiration for their virtue, indifference for their wickedness, and compassion for their suffering. If you can hold each of those states in the relevant situation, that will leave you unscathed and more able to hold your state, your high vibrational state, than going with jealousy, condemnation, uh, deprecation, and whatever you might otherwise have for people that are suffering, indifference. 
that's a very like broad characterization, mm. but is, is it possible for them to interconnect? They do. And so I was going to say then that the suffering category could be the people that are wicked. Yeah. And the reason that they're wicked is because suffering. they're in pain. So in that case, you've got to make a judgment. Maybe compassion is a better emotion to have than indifference. If that would help you to feel um, more benevolent, let's say. It, see, it's, it's tricky because sometimes if you're kind to someone that's wicked, they'll throw it back in your face. You ever encounter that? Mm -hmm. But I think that's possibly the difference. And that's how you can tell if it's wickedness or because you might be unsure. Or suffering. And if you respond with compassion and they kind of take you for a week being and you get spat back, no, that that person was wicked and yeah. you deserve my compassion. Yeah. Whereas maybe somebody who's kind of projecting wickedness onto you and you respond with compassion, then you watch them kind of ease and melt, then you can realize that was a... Great. Fabulous. Kind of great. suffering. You have a great understanding. <laughs> this is good. So the thing with the people that are suffering who are also wicked is that for them you have compassion. Um, knowing that their bad actions are arising because they're in pain. Oh, and I was going to say that um, for, for the ones that are wicked that are just going to throw it back at you, I remember this. there's a saying in Sanskrit, I don't know how to say it in Sanskrit, that basically you will know people like this, that whatever you do, they are so jaundiced in their and cynical in their approach to life that they'll try and d diminish it or um, any act of kindness that you do towards them is thrown back at you. The saying is milk when fed to serpents only serves to increase their venom. Right? So if you feed a snake milk as kindness you may actually be just imp in giving it more Strength. power. But they to still need compassion. They still need compassion, but you have to be... Look, and so then what you have to do... And walk away. Yeah. Mm. Then what you have to do is you have to apply... And this is not Patanjali talking, this is probably all of yoga talking, is that there are two primary attributes that you will automatically begin to develop as you meditate more and more and you spend more time in the internal realms of your own perfection. And the two attributes that you develop are in Sanskrit it's viveka and vairagya and in English they mean discrimination and dispassion. So discrimination means knowing what to do in the situation, to act appropriately that you have enough clarity to see what's required. And as you just said, Louise, this idea of being compassionate and then walking away could be the most discriminating thing you could do. I don't mean discrimination as in racial discrimination. You know what I mean by discrimination? It's being uh, using fine judgment to understand the, the appropriate thing to do. So that's viveka, discrimination. Vera, and you get both. Viragya is detachment. It's the ability to emotionally step out of the situation. In fact, it's a concomitant of having no ego investment. If there's no ego invested in the situation, then it's much easier to look at it objectively. The situation is objective. You can see clearly and there is nothing that you feel that you're going to lose. There's nothing at risk because you're already in a high state. So this this 
pair, this powerful pair of attributes, dispassion and discrimination, will get you through any situation. And then, I guess what Patanjali is saying to this person, to the students, is really until you develop discrimination, where you will know what to do, these are four rules of thumb that you can go by just to keep you out of trouble long enough, and then eventually you'll know what to do anyway, which comes back to what we said at the beginning. Not think too much about it, just... Yeah, it, and realize with the position, that's right, when, you've, when you're in a position of detachment, then this is what happened to me when I'm watching the coin on the ground. It's like you, you become the observer and so you're saying, isn't it funny watching my mind trying to wrestle with this decision? You still might, you still have the thoughts. I did pick it up. But I didn't have to, and, I, and I, had I not... Well, actually, when I picked it up, I sort of did have a thought that said, this might come in handy, or I might be able to give it to someone that needs it. Not that five cents is much. And I had that thought too, because you were standing right next to me. And find the coin. Find the coin, pick it up all the day, you'll have good luck. Yeah. So the, my point is not any of these thoughts, but the fact that you're able to see yourself thinking, as you did. Because you now are observing your thought stream and you're saying, okay, but you're still a little bit in it because there's still that hesitation, not sure what to do. But the, um, the beauty of being able to watch your thoughts is that it's quite funny, it's fun to do because you realize how much of your behavior is governed by all these idiotic, silly little thoughts that are running around in your head. Whereas when you move back into the witness state, which more and more you'll just be able to do, you can probably do it now anyway. I mean, when I say it, you get it. Because you just go, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Isn't it? It's very empowering. You're the actor in the play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so empowering because you see it all as a play. I love this stuff. Don't you love this stuff? Because it's sort of like, you've got freedom now. There are no rules. This is what we go into the higher realms of understanding is, and this is where we do get into Advaita, like um, Nisargadatta, I am that. He goes, here's the exercise, we'll do this, so close your eyes for a minute, and this is, this is a really nice little meditation. So he says, without relying on thoughts, memories, emotions, associations, or perceptions, am I virtuous, non-virtuous, or neither? And then he says, Become aware of the no-state state of the I am. And so you're just in the pure state of awareness of the I am.
where there are no thoughts, memories, emotions, associations or perceptions. We'll do another one. So without relying on thought, memory, emotion, associations or perceptions, am I adequate? inadequate or neither then become aware of the no state state of the I am and so at this moment you, you feel a presence within yourself of just this very expanded, very still state which is beyond thought memory emotion association or perception it is the no state state because it doesn't end, it doesn't rely on anything, it's unconditional and it's unbounded and it is just the pure state of being and when you live in this state when this state presents itself to you and you begin to operate from, from it then all these questions that we have fall away there are no consequences This is the idea of acting with no mind. It's like a Zen concept. Beginner's mind. Free of concept. And then you see everything fresh. Every situation is novel. And you just act. With perfect action. or non-action may be the perfect action just to allow and to accept not something that you're required to intervene in because you're just resting in the pure state of the I am and there's no need for action or if there is need for action then you act while remaining in the state This is very high yoga. Free of rules, constructs, other people's dictates. And yes, it's very liberating and empowering. This is, after all, your true nature. How could it be anything other than perfect?
and you just dwell in this state. Okay, and then you bring your awareness back to the breath, to the body, to the room. And while holding, holding on to this state very lightly, this awareness, you just come back, slowly open the eyes in your own time. Notice how your perspective on everything changes. and you get a taste of your own liberation. Good. Did you get to the no state state of the I am? Beyond mind? Yeah, it's okay. It's very quick to get there. I mean, when when you tuned in and you know what what to look for, you know. Let's try it again. Close your eyes and go straight back in. It's very close to the surface. It's like three breaths and you're there. I sometimes I call this resting in your stillness. Nothing to do. So, and then you come out again. Something I struggle with, and I know it's just my ego brain, um, but I can get there. And once I've like kind of moved a couple of thoughts out of the way, and I'm sitting in there, um, generally the first thing that comes up is like. I'm bored, like I want it to, like, right. I, like I want stimulation because it's so still yeah. and I think that could be like a personality thing, like I'm very excitable so it's almost like this is really still, like I'm not, like maybe it's a little bit uneasy if I haven't been there previously too much. Mm -hmm. So the egoic mind hates this because yeah, the egoic does. mind wants activity, yeah, it wants. It's almost like it's so nice to be there but then it's always very quickly my ego goes, I want to come out. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's, it's almost uneasy yeah. for it. Yeah. So You're actually threatening your ego. Yeah, you are. You are threatening the ego with oblivion, with extinction. Oh. And, and it hates it because the ego, all the ego wants is attention. Totally. It's like the, the tantrum child. Mm -hmm. I've had that experience many, many, many years ago. I had a very standout. Thumb sitting inside myself, and every question 
had been answered and it was all sparkly and amazing. It lasted only a few minutes and then my first thought is, I've got to tell somebody about this. <laughs> this is so incredible. And of course, bang. You lose the experience. Yeah. My lower vibrational self is telling me how jealous I am. No, no, no. It sounds amazing. No. No, that's the Patanjali would say. Be happy for her good fortune. I know, so I was fortune. just thinking, I was like, I'm happy for you. I was like, I wish I had that. See, here's a good thing to do. If you can be happy for their happiness, then you're happy. So you may as well have had the same experience because you've got the same result as they got. You're happy. And a feeling overcomes you. It just completely wipes out that, that previous feeling. Mm. And then you are overcome by a much more uh, satisfying feeling. You could try this exercise during the week. Every time you see someone happy and having fun, it doesn't matter what they're doing, look for their happiness. And the moment they feel happy, tune into the happiness and feel it as if it was happening to you, and you will you'll have some because there's no limit. Happiness is not proprietary. It's not like packaged or fenced off. The more that you can do that, because there's a lot of happiness. We draw a lot on the negativity of the world, the suffering in the world, but there's a lot of happiness. Even last night, the pubs are going off. And, you know, at one level it's annoying because you're trying to sleep, but I don't know if you realise, I mean, they're, having fun. they're laughing and they're having fun. And I thought, I'm just going to tune into that higher I mean yeah they're doing it through alcohol and whatever but we do it through our way but so yeah it, it's that still right. it's the same happiness yeah. but that's why I like wine yeah it's the same <laughs> happiness if you're doing if you're drinking wine yogically <laughs> go for it okay. there's no <laughs> downside until unless the only tra trap is if you confuse the wine for the happiness. Yes, yes. Or yes. equivalent to anything. But that I can't be happy unless I have a wine. Don't yeah. No, that's, Chocolate. That's addiction. No, no, I don't have that. Yeah. But if you can be... You I be always look at things too as if this is being created out of love. Yeah. This is an art form. Yeah. It's like with anything, anything that, that's done <laughs> creatively. <laughs> you are very creative. <laughs> You know, if you want to get into gratitude, I did this one time. I thought about a loaf of bread. Well, that's a craft. How many people did it take to make that loaf of bread? And it wasn't just the baker. It was the farmer. It was the guy that supplied the fertilizer to the farm. The truck driver that drove the fertilizer to the farm. It was the irrigation system. It was the harvester. It was the guy that made the harvester. It was the people that stored it, transported it, refined it, turned it into dough, you know, made the malt or whatever goes into the yeast. And I figured out there were like 200 different people involved in that chain to make a loaf of bread, give or take. And then I felt when I was eating the bread, I was grateful to every one of those people, even though they don't know it. At some level, they do. They probably feel get the gratitude, and I think it's the same as what you're saying. So it's this idea of being living in a state of benevolent kindness, gratitude, and joyfulness. And there are so many triggers in every situation. Rather than looking for the bad in things, 
look for the the light. Because only you experience all of those traits. Only you. Yeah. I guess these thoughts are like a beautiful, and when you're reminded of it, it puts things into perspective. But on some level, like I feel like guilt about like being caught up in the ego and and like when you do get reminded and you do put things into perspective you feel mm -hmm. sort of guilty that you went <laughs> there but then you've got to go on top of that and have compassion that you know everybody gets caught up in right the, so one of the things you have to have compassion for is yourself mm -hmm. and being human being, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. and forgive yourself yeah. a lot because we're all going to make mistakes from time to time i think if you're very kind to yourself you can move on very quickly yeah from yeah, this comes back to my thing about get off the tightrope. You know, you don't have to be perfect. You know, perfection in every relative action or decision you make is not possible because you don't have the full information for a start to know the consequence and the impact of every single decision you make. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So even things that you do intending them to be good can have bad consequences. I didn't mean to do that. Sometimes you do something with the best intentions and it still has a bad outcome. So you can't be too hard on yourself with that. So it's more a question of, um, like I say, going back to the beginning, getting out of the mind and just being. Get, um, align yourself with the highest vibrational state that you can hold and create and return to and just live from that and make that the habitual thinking. One of the things that I've become aware of lately is that if you do realise that you're in ego or something else, that you, that's a really good sign and you should be really grateful that yep. you actually became aware. Because before we had this knowledge, we, we mm -hmm. weren't actually aware, we just lived through it. Yep. Lived through it. Yeah. That's but very just, true. Just being aware of that. Mm -hmm. anyway, that's the first step, that's the first sign of progress. That I want you to really work on this idea of identity. You can probably do it anyway, but be vigilant with your thoughts. Identify a thought that's egoic. Notice it, tag it, then let it go. That's ego. And when you say you're sitting there and you're getting bored, just remind yourself that there is a state beyond that that is more so profound, so full actually, but it's a very profound, deep and transformative state and with patience and application there is so much more in the inner universe than anything that you can encounter in this outside world. And that's why you see those old photos of great yogis from India. They were in absolute ecstasy oh. permanently. Mm. And you can see it in their eyes and expression. Yeah, so it's what I talk about, the, the state of pervasive ecstasy is what starts to happen. When you go deeper, over time, you start to unlock this, the ecstatic state. And I think it must, there must be neurochemicals involved at the physical level, that, that, that we are basically releasing a flood of feel-good hormones, for lack of a better word, when we meditate. And you'll get there. You have to just remember that sometimes it's going to be rough going at the beginning because the mind wants to get up, the mind is bored. So you have to just move through that. Be patient. 
Yeah, but it's right. The death of the ego, you know, this idea of um, the extinction of the ego is a terrifying thought for the ego. Mm -hmm. It hates the fact that you're even here having this discussion because it's sort of sensing at some level that the game is about to be up. Its game is almost up. And, and all you have to do is just treat the ego like you would treat, treat a, a small child and just say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And move beyond. So where's the ego generated from? Is that Largely it's subconscious mind. It's, pr it's a com combination of conditioning in this life, being told that you are this, you are that, and then you take on that definition of yourself, that's the start of the ego. But it also comes from the past, because of the samskaras, the impressions on the soul from previous incarnations, you will have attributes and tendencies, some of which are egoic, that have no explanation. Um, I guess we call it personality. Yeah, personality, you could say. But the soul's personality, right? Mm -hmm. That the, the characteristics that you have, good and bad, may not be attributable to anything that's happened to you in this lifetime. And even if it has, it may be sublimated into the subconscious. So the ego is drawing on all of that, all of that material. And, it's, and then you've got the belief system is a part of that too, that the ego will seize on beliefs and ideas and it will use them as ammunition against you and other people. So an example might be, say you, say you, you know someone and initially you thought they were a good person, but eventually you started to see their shortcomings. Husband wife. Yeah, could be. <laughs> <laughs> like let's say bad marriage about to end <laughs> and it's like it doesn't matter what they say to you you're so you're viewing it through the lens of the voice in your head that's saying there they go again <laughs> or <laughs> laughing. we're all laughing don't worry <laughs> Well, that's so, that's so much the signature of this sort of thing I'm talking about. That you can't even listen, even if they came up with something that really they meant well, it's too far gone. <laughs> You're, you've written them off and there's no going back and it doesn't matter what they say or do. That's it. You've done some marriage counselling. I don't know. Once trust goes, <laughs> it's all over. It's you all know. over. So I think the key is that, that you have to, again, watch those thoughts. Watch those thoughts and say, um, you know, what's the appropriate thing to do here rather than what is the reactive thing to do here? And it may be to say nothing. Oftentimes, don't engage. 
but what about when they say, I say nothing? Yeah, well. <laughs> that has Why loaded. don't you say That's something? Loaded. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> loaded. Well, what do you think about that? <laughs> I don't know. It's all good. You don't want to play that game. But you know, that's, ver that's a very hard situation to recover from. Once it's that to that point where you can't see objectively what they're saying because it is so colored by your emotions and your, your beliefs that you've formed around that individual, you have to change the beliefs. That's the only way out of that situation. You have to go... Let it, let it go and walk away. Yeah. And come back to it maybe in time. You could, but the thing is you've got to do work. If you want to persist in the relationship, you've got to change the way you perceive or that situation or it's never going to get better. And you can only work on yourself. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't change them. And, and the more you're in the state, the less stuff will arise anyway. Yeah. Away, well, that's an option. Um, <laughs> we knew, uh, we know a, a teacher um, that came up through our tradition and he used to say, what to do in a bad situation? And he basically said there are four things to do in a bad situation. This can be any situation, it can be work, relationships, whatever. The first option, not necessarily in any order here, the first option is can you change the situation or the person? So you, well that's your first question and you may be able to do something. Let's say it's an unhealthy work environment. And you need to say something, you need to have the courage to speak up, and you might be able to change it. You could, let's say someone's being harassing or something. Call them on it, do what needs, or again, dispassion, no emotional engagement, go in and do what needs to be done. You have to make the judgment, so you're using discrimination to say, can I change this situation? If so, that's what you do. The set, but you may not be able to change the situation. So the second... Um, option is can I transcend it? Can I just rise above it? Get to the point where I can just tolerate it without it bringing me down. Am I able to achieve that perspective where I just rise above it? That's your second option. That's pretty hard to do for most people, but it could be. And maybe if you can do the inner work and change the belief on the way that you perceive it, then you could do that. Go and do Yoga Nidra. Take that problem into Yoga Nidra and just completely obliterate whatever energy dynamic is bonding you to the problem. So you can be free of it and then you, don't, you, you have a shift and you don't see it the same way. So that's option two. Option three, if you can't do A or B, or one and two, change or transcend, Option three is you may have to leave the situation. Mm. Sometimes leaving is the appropriate thing to do. Let's say you're in a job. I worked in a school once when I was a teacher where it was very poisonous, the atmosphere. The people around me were very critical individuals and it was, it was infecting the whole dynamic and I just couldn't do it anymore and I quit the job. Two young children, huge mortgage, no new job to go to, but I just said, this is no good for me to be in this environment. I actually, the responsible thing to do is to leave. Mm. You can't change it and you can't transcend it because it's too 
embedded. So you leave. Option four is kind of the non-option. This is the Clayton's option. The option that isn't an option, really. And that is that you just continue to suffer. Do nothing. Which a lot of people do do. They can't change. They don't try and change it. They don't try and transcend it. They haven't got the courage to leave it. So they just put up with it and continue to suffer. That's probably not so healthy. But Better what about sometimes things just pass, you know? Well, that could be option two, that you're going to transcend it with the idea that it, maybe it'll change. So I'm not going to let it bother me for now because it could change. Napoleon used to say, I never answer correspondence in less than one year. <laughs> he said, a lot of people write to me with their problems. He said, I make a point of waiting at least 12 months before I reply. He says, I, and then he goes, I find that most situations resolve themselves <laughs> over time. So by waiting, sometimes the problem just sorts itself out. He said, <coughs> if it's still a problem after 12 months and it's a bit serious, then I'll intervene. So sometimes the best course of action is no action. Just wait. But again, you need detachment and you need discrimination to form that view. Okay, so that's a really great discussion. We didn't quite get to the Patanjali Sutras, but we did cover Patanjali from the four attitudes. The Sutras are really powerful formulations of truths that he has, he and other yogis have intuited in deep meditative states and then written them down. And I think there's 196 and I'm up to number 11. On in the in Instagram, so <coughs> we'll work I through those. Looking for you on Instagram. Mil I'm Milton looking lowercase Milton underscore meditation underscore center. Yeah, All right, so I can um, can we so share Milton links? Meditation. Milton meditation center, all in lowercase with it's underscores. Easy. Try the underscore, I think it limits how you can say things. So I'm up to sutra number 10, there's 11 there, but the first one is... Oh, that no, I know what it is. His first sutra is Atam Yoga, Yogaha, which is, and now Yoga. So it's not actually a sutra, but he's saying, he's setting it up, saying, and now we turn our attention to the question of Yoga. And then sutra number two, I'm picking up as my sutra number one, which is yoga is the stilling of the movements of the mind. That's where he begins. And then he goes on to sutra, uh, well, his sutra three, my sutra two. So three, four, five, six, seven, eight. He's talking about the different types of movements of the mind which does pick up what we were saying at the beginning about the thoughts that are occurring in your head that are taking you away from just pure experience of self are the thoughts about should I or shouldn't I do this or the thoughts about uh, imagination, imaginative thoughts, you know, fantasies or and daydreaming and all that or deep sleep he considers to be another modification of the mind he says there's still movement within deep sleep. 
Because you can't control what happens in No, sleep. but you can do yoga nidra, and eventually what happens is you do yogic sleep, and then there is awareness, and so there is stillness. And he said in deep sleep there's still movement. So it's taking you away from recognition of the experience of the self. Where you want to get to eventually, which will happen, is that you'll be in a continuous state of pure awareness, whether you're awake or asleep. And that will even carry through sleep. But you'll, it won't be the kind of sleep you're having. It's the kind of sleep we do with Yoga Nidra, where you're, the body is asleep, but there is still awareness. That's the ultimate state. But that's Sutra 10, I think, that I put up the other day. Anyway, we'll talk about these another time, because it's great to see when you start to um, unpack all the different types of movement in the mind then you can start to get far greater insight into what's keeping you apart from the experience of just unconditioned consciousness and you can start to say, you know like you've been saying that's an egoic thought but he'd say that let's go further you might say that's an imaginative thought you know it's a fiction it's just a idea from somewhere that's not even real. So he talks a bit about that. What happens when you get into that? Fantasy thinking. Or what if you get caught into mistake in thinking? Someone told you something but it's actually wrong and you're carrying around this wrong thing. Or something you read in the media and it's actually just a beat up like the Parliament House thing. Turns out it might just be a gross exaggeration of something that's happening every day anyway. And so everyone's running around going, ah, ah, the sky's falling in, you know, Parliament's being attacked. Well, but in a way, it's just diverting us away from what may be really happening. True. they don't want us to know. Yeah, but happening. what Patanjali would say is it's actually diverting you away from your pure experience of self. So why even do anything? Why even give anything to that? Mm. Is, it, is it uplifting, you know? You, but then he does talk about right knowledge. He says some of these movements of the mind are helpful. Some will propel us in the direction we want to go until we can become completely thought free and, free and spontaneous, but others will be impediments. And so he's trying to guide us through the minefield of our minds to say, notice all the different kinds of movements or waves, vrittis in Sanskrit, vritti is a wave. Look at all the different forms of disturbance that are there and at least initially try and cultivate those movements that are positive, like the main one is right knowledge and discrimination. That's your holding position. Why you read texts, you know, yoga texts, or anything that is uplifting, that gives you uh, the capacity to stay on the path gives you something positive to think about until there's no thought. If you've got to have thoughts, better to have positive thoughts, right? Ultimately better not to have any thoughts, but positive thoughts are better than no negative thoughts. So you want to steer away. And what you do is you get strong in the mind. Are you able to get rid of, are you able to avoid negative thoughts? They drift in, they More than before? Oh, oh God, yeah. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, I can go. I'm able to do that. So the key is diversion. Or Actually, he comes a much later sutra. I don't know where it is, but it's much later on. He says, if you're having a negative thought, think the opposite. Yeah. So if you're thinking about a person critically, 
consider some of their positive attributes and dwell on those. See, so he's got all these amazing practical techniques. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, think the opposite. Some people have got no redeeming features at all, right? <laughs> well, you know, every well, you could leave, so that's true. But I mean, some everyone's got something positive about him, surely. Saddam Hussein might have had a very nice moustache or something. I don't know. That's probably a bit out there. But I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Well, what he's saying is, if it's a choice between thinking negatively. Think Try and find something positive to think about. If you can't think nothing at all. If you can't think nothing at all. Or if there's nothing positive and you can't do it, then get away because it's obviously the... Exactly. Key. Use your discrimination. Yeah. You'll know what to do. Yeah. Ask for guidance. That's another thing. Did you do that with the shopping trolley? No, I just decided that... Well, I often get a, a feeling mm -hmm. with different things. So, I, And I sense that I shouldn't leave it. I should take it. So I did. Yep. So go with that. And then mm -hmm. be done with it. Yep. I know you had to ask it today because it's a great question and it got us onto this whole analysis. But really what you should do once you make the decision is just, just do it and then just let it go. Yep. You know, I told you about that Aboriginal elder I spoke to that said unhitch, unhook the wagons, that all this baggage that we're carrying from the past about things I've done and then, then you just keep dwelling on that and you return to it over and over again and you're towing like he's in Alice Springs so he's you can imagine road trains coming up the highway there and they're carrying sometimes they get triple ones don't they and so you're towing all of this baggage and is the elder that trained him was an Aboriginal elder and he said why are you doing that? He said, you've got to unhook the, unhook the trailer. See, it's so, they're so wise. They make it sound so simple too. Well, it can be. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm. Mm. Okay, we should meditate now. Any questions before we finish? Maybe we shouldn't have any questions anyway because it will just lead us into more discussion. So what we're going to do now is just leave all that behind. Get into a nice comfortable upright position. If, observe the thoughts as you're going into meditation, particularly the ones that say, I'm bored. And just smile at those thoughts and say, I'll come back to you later. And so we're sitting comfortably upright and we're bringing our awareness to the breath. And you probably feel the state's fairly accessible because of our prior encounters with it today. So you just allow it a feeling of spaciousness to arise within. You can introduce the mantra, become aware of the mantra as something that will displace the thoughts.
coordinating or following it on the breath. to lead you into the state by following it with your awareness. And when the stillness is apparent, you surrender into the stillness. All effort, all thought. And I'll speak again in 15 minutes. <coughs>